It's Friday, June 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We got through it. Two nights, 20 candidates, four hours, lots of Trump bashing, and lots of policy. The first round of the Democratic debates has ended, and there were some clear winners and losers. All the frontrunners remain intact, Julian Castro raised his profile, and Kamala Harris looked strong in a serious exchange with Joe Biden. But how did the frontrunner Joe Biden fare at the end of it all? There was also this interesting moment of honesty from Pete Buttigieg. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us from the Democratic debate spin room to break it all down. Next, a Supreme Court ruling that is considered a setback for the Trump administration. They will not be able to ask U.S. residents the status of their citizenship on the 2020 census, at least for now. It has been kicked down to a lower court for more explanation from the administration, but time is running out, and now Trump is asking if the census can be delayed. Nicole Nerea, senior immigration reporter for Law360, joins us for more. That's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Ginger, you're joining us straight from the Democratic debate spin room right now. Thank you for being here with us. Glad to be joining you from a a room with a few hundred people and (laughs) almost 10 candidates. Oh, my God. We got through it. There was two nights, obviously 20 candidates, two hours each debate session. That is a lot to get through. The big moment, I think, across both nights was the exchange between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden when she was pressing him on uh, you know, his praise with working with segregationists and, and his stance on busing. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's take it in order. Night one, who were the winners and losers? I thought Senator Warren did a great job. No harm there. Senator Cory Booker, he just looked good. I thought he did good. Amy Klobuchar also looked pretty good. Julian Castro, though, I think he took it. He had that standout moment when he was fighting with Beto O'Rourke over immigration. And I think Beto O'Rourke kind of lost points over the whole night. How did you see it? I really do agree with you that Julian Castro did have really one of the best nights. He told reporters on Thursday morning that he had his best fundraising night. And he really said to us when we talked to him that it was about being himself, that he didn't try too many rehearsed lines. He criticized some of his opponents as acting like cartoon characters when they get onto the debate stage and said he just went out there, answered questions. Yeah, he's soft-spoken sometimes, but he felt like he was just direct and clear and that that really resonated. He really thinks that this debate performance on Wednesday night was is going to give him the boost he needs to stay in this race for months longer. Let's take a quick listen to the exchange, part of the exchange that he had with Beto O'Rourke. Hey, 
Bethel. I think it's a mistake. And I think that, that if you truly want to change the system, then we've got to repeal that section. If not, Thank you. then it might as well, well be the same let, policy. Let, let me very very respond to this very briefly. Actually, as a member of Congress, I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure that we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge I'm in this country. If you're about, fleeing, if you're fleeing desperation, asylum, then I'm I want to make about, sure, I'm I want to make sure that you're treated with respect. Obviously, uh, immigration, a huge issue for Julian Castro, but also for Beto O'Rourke. And he just showed a better mastery and knowledge of some of the issues. And Beto O'Rourke just kind of flailed a little bit through that exchange. As Castro said, he did his homework and it it showed on the debate stage that he just had a firmer grasp of the policy that was being debated, that he understood the issues and the underlying issues and that he was comfortable talking about them. You know, this is a race that has been more policy heavy than almost anyone we have seen before. Look at Elizabeth Warren and her reams and reams of policy proposals. But it's not just about having proposals on paper. It's about being able to talk about them when 20 million people are watching in a one-minute answer. And I think that's what we saw on Wednesday night between Castro and Beto, uh, one who could really take that policy and give a quick and easy to understand answer, while another one who struggled and looked at times a bit lost or confused about what he was talking about. Okay, let's move on to night two, because there was a lot of fireworks there. That's why uh, that's where, you know, four of the top five front runners were placed right there. And I felt like, I mean, it was really, that was the show. It was Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg. Kamala Harris obviously stood out very strong. She had that prosecutorial stance and she was very tough against former Vice President Joe Biden. We saw Harris really take it to Joe Biden. She went hard. She interjected herself into a discussion, which, you know, was also a great moment for her. As they were talking about race, she said, hey, look, as the black woman on stage, she alluded. She uh, shut shut Todd down at that moment. Shut it down and then made the conscious choice to turn and begin attacking Joe Biden on his history and on his comments earlier this month about race. We have a short clip of that. Let me play that just so we can follow up on that after. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then? Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. Yeah, at that moment, I mean, everybody really tuned in heavy because it it got very serious. It got very personal as well for Kamala. It did. She was masterful in prosecuting him. This is a complicated history. If we look at Joe Biden's voting records, the legislation he sponsored his 36 years in the United States Senate, he was one of the biggest champions of civil rights and equal rights legislation. But she zeroed in on his one biggest vulnerability, his opposition to the way busing was handled, particularly in his home state of Delaware. And and really use that to make the case that he was disqualified. She didn't use that word, but really went after him hard on that front. Aside from that, former Vice President Joe Biden has been the leader, double digit lead in polls. Everybody knew he was going to get attacked on, on multiple fronts, and he did field some of those. This was the biggest one, I think. How did he do overall? I feel like he just kind of remained flat. He didn't rise any higher. Maybe he dipped a little lower with this exchange from with Kamala, but 
I feel like he was just kind of flat. You know, we'll have to wait and see how the voters respond. That's really what's going to matter. But I think he did have some strong moments. Harris really just had the strongest moments. Yeah. So when we pair them up, he looks deficient. But if we also look when he was sort of challenged by Eric Swalwell, who's pointed to a quote Biden had made in the 80s talking about handing the torch over when Biden was then a young man. Biden came back and said, I'm not done with the torch. <laughs> that was one of my Forced favorite moments right there. Uh, we have that yeah. Eric Swalwell clip too. I just wanted to play it just because it was a kind of funny moment from that debate right there. I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. Swalwell only spoke four minutes total in that whole debate, really didn't get much out. But even trying to point to that generational divide and everything with, with uh, how old Joe Biden is. And your listeners can't see it because they're not viewers. But as he was saying this, the split screen showed that Biden had a big smile oh, on yeah. his face. Gave a really forceful response after that. I actually think Biden took that exchange and was able to capitalize on it at the end of it and come out the better for it. So he had moments. It wasn't all bad for him, I think, today. I think if we're going to look at someone who didn't really come through that surprised us, that would be Bernie Sanders. We didn't hear anything new from him. Same and old for Bernie. Big portions of the debate, he seemed to sort of fade into the background. Another standout moment that I thought was kind of interesting was from Pete Buttigieg and the honesty it seemed that he was portraying when they were talking about diversity in the police force. Obviously, there was a shooting there that happened not too long ago, and the police force is only 6% black in a city that's 26% African American. You can really feel the honesty, I felt, saying, you know, I just couldn't get it done there. Did he get out of this kind of Beto O'Rourke mode where Beto came across really not much substance? How did Mayor Pete Buttigieg fare on this front? We all knew going into this debate that Buttigieg's real asset, the thing that he brought to campaigns, is his ability to think on his feet, to have a presence on a debate stage or on a stage at all. We really saw his campaign take off after he did that CNN town hall where he got a lot of attention and a lot of praise for how he handled questions in front of a live audience. I think you're right. I think that he did do what Beto couldn't do and really seized on this debate. We saw that answer. It came off as very authentic and it didn't sound like he was trying to apologize or make this go away. He said, look, I just, I didn't get it done. I failed. It was an acknowledgement and a stark contrast, I think, than sort of the reality we're living in with the current administration and the current White House that never admits to doing anything wrong. Democrats have said that they don't want their own Donald Trump. And I think we're seeing that repeatedly, especially when you see answers like that. Okay, let's move on to some just bigger picture stuff. Over the course of the two nights, what were the main issues that Democrats are bringing up. As I said, there was a lot of swipes about the president, but there was a lot of policy going on. I saw a lot about healthcare, a lot about immigration, a lot about the economy. The candidates were bringing up the economy's only gotten better for the top slice of people, not for everybody else. And the economy was a big issue. We saw both nights of the debate start with a discussion about the economy and who the economy is working 
before. There was an interesting exchange with Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, which I think many of us here at the debate thought was going to set up a night of clashes. And that was kind of the it of the two of them. But Bernie really admitting that his health care proposal would mean raising taxes on the middle class and Biden coming back and saying, if taxes are raised in the middle class, people won't be able to sustain that, even if there is more access to health care. So there really was a lot of discussion about how the middle class and poor people in America are continuing to struggle in this economy. I would say the other big policy issue was healthcare. Yeah. You mentioned that. But Nobody agreed saw... on anything. Everybody was all over the place. Medicare for all. How do you pay for it? We still want private insurers. I mean, that one was kind of hard to wrap my head around. There was a lot of discussion about health care and about not just what policies should the Democratic Party embrace around health care and is it Medicare for all and what does a buy-in option look like, but also what does it mean about the future and the core of their party when they have this discussion? Just how liberal are Democrats? Just how far are they willing to go? And how much they think the American public is willing to embrace and accept? And that was a strain that that crossed over both nights in that healthcare debate. It seemed pretty clear over the course of two nights who the front runners are, why they are the front runners. They just have a lot of uh, experience, a lot of policy behind them. Pete Buttigieg, not that much, but he's still there, very charismatic, and, and that honesty that is really refreshing. At this point, it's only the first debate. We still have 20-plus candidates. There's Some people obviously didn't make the debate. At this moment, with this such a long way to go, who looks ready to take on President Trump right now? I think we saw a number of candidates who demonstrated an ability to take on President Trump. What we saw in these last two nights was a debate inside the party about how to take on Donald Trump. And they didn't really say that explicitly, but that's the underlying point. Is it about running after him with as much policy as they could? Is it about getting the base, the most liberal of their party, the most excited? Is it about winning those sort of moderate voters that had voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump? And that's a debate that I think Democrats are going to keep having before they decide who they think the best candidate to take on Trump is. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joining us live from that spin room after the debate. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I just think it makes sense to make sure that when you count, uh, all this money goes to aid. And, you know, I think a lot of people believe that how much money a state gets based on the number of people should be related to those here legally, not illegally. Joining us now is Nicole Norea, senior immigration reporter at Law 360. A divided Supreme Court prevented the Trump administration for now from asking U.S. residents on the 2020 census whether they are citizens or not. This is uh, considered a, a setback for the White House. They'd been pushing this for some time now. And the justices didn't issue a definitive decision whether the citizenship question was unlawful or not, but it did raise concerns about the stated reasons that they had for adding that question. Help explain this to us. Why did the White House want to have this on the census? One of the big issues in this saga of a case has been whether Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross lied about his real reasoning for including the citizenship question on the census. He initially said that it was because he was trying to help out the Justice Department because they needed better citizenship data for their enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. But it actually came to light with evidence presented over the course of the case that he had been talking about the citizenship question in the very early days of his time in office. And that's way before he started talking to the Justice Department about it. So naturally, that raised some red flags. His opponents in the case have 
argued that he actually wanted to discriminate against immigrant and minority populations that would be undercounted as a result of this citizenship question. And while the Supreme Court didn't go that far, they acknowledged that there are some huge discrepancies between what the Department of Commerce has said in court and what actually happened based on the evidence. Yeah, Justice Roberts said that there was a significant mismatch between the decision he made and the rationale he provided. He called it contrived. So this goes back to a lower court now. There was three other courts that have already said that he couldn't put this question on the census. Does it go back to those same courts or where does this play out now? This specific case is going to be going back to the New York federal court who initially issued a ruling in this case. But the thing is, is that the administration is essentially working on a very abbreviated timeline. The Census Bureau has said that they have to start printing the paper census by the end of June, and it is the end of June this weekend. So there's just not a whole lot of time for them to try to explain themselves in court and get the green light from a judge and still start printing the census on Monday. Wilbur Ross does have the right, does have the power to put this question on the census. It's been on there before in the past. It's just basically the explanation that they had for it this time around didn't pass muster. So theoretically, they could re-argue, provide some other information, and then it could make it back on there at a later time. According to the attorneys that I've talked to, that is a feasible option. But the thing is, is that the lower court is still going to have to take into consideration in all likelihood all that's happened with the Department of Commerce trying to cover up what's been going on in terms of losses decision making here. So it would be pretty difficult for the administration to get themselves out of this hole that they've created for themselves and still make it in time for their deadline to print the census. So their odds right now aren't so great. Yeah, as you mentioned, they had it to the end of June. July 1st is when they were planning to start printing these things. The Bureau planned to print out 138 million sets of questionnaires and a total of 1.6 billion items such as follow-up mailings for the count. That's a lot of stuff that they needed to get going. I was reading that they had one copy that had the question, one copy that didn't have the question, just because they were waiting for this and it's coming down at the wire. Let's talk about what the president has said now in response to this. He had a a pair of tweets that seems totally ridiculous that our government can't ask this type of question. And he said he's asked lawyers if they can delay the census no matter how long until the Supreme Court can uh, definitively decide on this. Is that possible? Can we put this on hold? I'm not a lawyer, but my take is that he can't. So first of all, federal law literally says that the census has to be conducted every 10 years on April 1st. And the Census Bureau is already operating, as you said, on a really tight schedule to carry that out. And in addition to that, there are all these other pending cases and lower courts that are still challenging the citizenship question on other grounds that weren't in the Supreme Court case. So, for example, they're talking about whether the citizenship question violates the constitutional principle of equal protection for everyone under the laws. It's just really unlikely that Trump can both overcome those cases and still meet the April deadline. So, in my mind, I don't think that what he's wanting to do will be feasible. The last question I had was there was some evidence that was provided by the New York Immigration Coalition. This was after oral arguments were made before the Supreme Court that said that putting this question on the census was designed to boost Republican electoral representation and depress non-citizen response rates. What happened there? What what was the uh, evidence that they had there? It's been an argument all along in this case that the real reason behind Moss's decision was to depress response rates among immigrant and minority communities. But there wasn't necessarily hard evidence for that. 
this new evidence that was introduced at the 11th hour after oral arguments in the case of the Supreme Court does essentially insinuate that. And the Supreme Court seems to ignore that extra evidence in their opinions, but the lower court in New York has decided to reopen briefing on that subject just because of that extra evidence. We definitely could see courts addressing that extra evidence, and it is pretty explosive. Nicole Norea, senior immigration reporter at Law360, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.